Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is November the 14th, 2017. This is episode 2112 of the Survival Podcast. And if you can hear my voice, I am uh, still recovering from the uh, workshop. I ran the Veterans Day special yesterday, partly because of that and partly because, well, I didn't want to let a year go by without running the Veterans Day special. And it'd probably be best today if I didn't do a show. But I, I just I just can't do that. I, I went all last week without a show. Um, my voice isn't what it's supposed to be. I'm going to cut some stuff out of today's show. Uh, we're gonna I'm going to tell you what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about it, and I'll have a song of the day included. But the history segment, um, uh, the uh, sponsor segments, and all I'm going to cut for the day, just to cut down, you know, maybe 15 minutes of straining my voice. I do have a rather long show and topics picked out for you guys today. But some of it's relatively quick to answer. I just feel like after being gone for a week and a day and taking a day off for the week before, I, I uh, can't, uh, I, I can't not do a show for you guys. You guys tune in, you expect new content, and I'm going to give it to you. I, I will tell you if you're new to my show, <clears throat> please don't judge this show on today's show. Um, I've had a strained voice leading up to a workshop, and then I had four or five days of people here non-stop talking with people, having to raise my voice above crowds and things like that. Uh, so my voice isn't what it is. And on top of this, I've congested or contact, contracted somebody's somebody's disease that they brought with them to the workshop. So I'm kind of uh, a little bit out of it. I'm not at the top of my game, but I will do my best for you. What do I have today? I have maintaining a, sol a social media presence without a ton of work. I have a question on that. I have more evidence the education industry is in a death spiral. This one is one that people go, yeah, yeah, but I don't think that most people really get how big a deal this is. I have a question about deep frying and air fryers. I have a question on choosing a grinder and adding fat and best grinding practices for grinding wild game. I have a question on what specifically makes processed food so bad for you. I mean, everybody just accepts that, but what are the real reasons for it? I have growing walnuts and the evil substance, juglone, that ain't so evil. I have greenhouses may soon double as uh, photovoltaic solar panels, uh, the glass in them. And so that we can have glass, light comes through, grows the plant, but yet that glass also generates electricity, can help support the greenhouse's power requirements. And I'll tell you why that's actually a little piece of something much bigger that we're going to see more and more of. I have a question on scoping a 30-30 without overspending or overscoping. And I have a reminder for you guys about Liberty Forum 2018 coming uh, in the winter of 2018. All of that and more. Uh, we'll get right into it. Like I said, I'm going to try to, uh, to keep my, uh, you know, keep the, the amount of content that I'm providing today down, but give you a lot of new and interesting content. So my first one today comes from Richard. Richard says, um, hey, Jack. You have your TSP social media presence and your personal social media, TSP forum, fan page, etc. versus Jack Spierko, but how much of a pain in the ass is it to keep up with both? <clears throat> Are there tools you use to streamline this or at least keep it all organized in the dashboard of sorts? I'm going to create a new online handle to use as my central identity across all social media and a starting point documenting my journey, navigating entrepreneurship and adventures in life. 
Currently, I have different names on different social media sites, and I have too much personal history on some sites. I'd really not rather be available to possible new audience strangers and trolls. There's enough of that already. Thank you for your insights and time. It won't be wasted, Richard, in Hockley, Texas. Okay, so let's start out with what I consider my personal social media presence that I control. Uh, that would be primarily YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. I have a YouTube account. Uh, that I do all my podcast-related and industry-related stuff on. I do, and I do 99% of what goes on YouTube goes to my work YouTube, if you want to call it that, right? I have my Twitter account, and I have uh, my Facebook, uh, you know, my personal page, which just I only see that as my personal page. And I have my, my company page. And then we do have a, a group called the Survival Podcast Facebook Forum. I'll, I'll, I'll save that one for last. Okay, so first and foremost, I do take some heat on my personal Facebook page, and I usually tell people in not-so-too-elegant words to just basically F off when I hear shit about it. Like, you're disseminating information, and you're a well-known celebrity, and you... Shut up. Okay, I'm entitled to my personal life, just like you are. And my personal page is for things that I find personally interesting. Some of those things also go to my, my, my company page. Some of them don't. If you choose to follow me um, on Facebook as an individual, you should understand that. And if we're friends, that means I accepted your friend request. And I don't mean to sound arrogant, but frankly, you should be grateful. Because I, I accept probably one-tenth of my friend requests. I go in every once in a while and randomly select people. I look for people I actually know who they are, and then I delete the rest because I just can't have that many people as friends. They, there's actually a cap where they say no more. My company page I reserve for things that I find relevant and germane to the Survival Podcast and its related industries. My Twitter account is almost exclusively for work, and I don't really use it much at all. There's an important thing going on there. I am a Facebook user. I use Twitter. Let me say that again. I'm a Facebook user. I use Twitter. What I mean by that is I actually enjoy Facebook to a degree. Um, I interact with a lot of people on Facebook completely independent of being the survival podcast. If it was not for the need to communicate with people that use Twitter in our modern space, I probably wouldn't even use Twitter. I don't really like Twitter I don't get a lot out of Twitter, and I know you get out what you put in, and I don't put in a lot. I tweet my stuff, and occasionally I notice somebody calling out to me or something, or I'll call out to somebody, but in, in the end, I find Twitter redundant. But other people don't, so I use it. YouTube I see as a funnel to bring people into the survival podcast communities. So I know that I'll reach people that I would otherwise never reach by having content on YouTube, And I do video content. I like to do video content. I like to share it with you. And it's the best platform as of right now to reach the largest number of people. And that's why I use it. Now, let's talk about how I use Facebook and Twitter. If you go to the survivalpodcast.com, on every post, you'll see a little button that says tweet. When I'm done, I click that button. It formats a tweet for me. I look at it. I decide whether I like it or I want to change it. I do whatever I think I need to do to it, and I copy it. Control-C. Then I hit Tweet. It goes to Twitter. I'd say maybe one day a week I actually look at a Twitter feed. For the most part, that is all that I do. I put my content out on Twitter for people to use it, to share it, to follow it. That's why I do it, because people want it. I then go to Facebook. 
to my page, not my personal page. And I take that tweet that I copied and I hit control V and I paste it in. This all takes about, I've already, I'm already done in trying to explain it if I'm actually doing it. Sometimes I want to say a little bit more than Twitter gives me space to say. I'll add it in. I click share. Boom. It's on my Facebook page. That's happened. It's done. Then I, I share it to my personal page and I share it to the Facebook forum. And if it's very specific to another group, Like if they would find it interesting, like let's say I reviewed something that's really a homestead product, I might share it to the regenerative agriculture group. And there's some other groups I'm involved in that I will share my own content to from time to time, but not chronically, at least I'd be considered a spammer or a troll. Okay, I find most groups are totally receptive to you sharing your own content as long as you share, let's say, five things non-yours to everyone that's yours, and maybe you're around a little while before you start sharing your own. Just saying. Now, where does that leave the Facebook forum? Again, I share it to my personal page and the forum, which is a group. I do not run, manage, or control the group. It is run, managed, and controlled by members of this audience that wanted a group to communicate with each other at a higher level than they can on a page. Now, if I was starting a new concern today, I would set up a page and I would set up a group. I would maintain control of the group. I would certainly seek to find people that were trusted to act as admins and moderators on the group because that saves you a lot of grief. I would promote the group over the page because I, could, I have like 5,000 people in the group and 110,000 people in a page, and I'll post something to the group, and I'll have 200 comments on it. So I know a hell of a lot more than 200 people saw it even though there's only 5,000 people in the group. I'll post it to the page, and it'll say, like, 800 people saw your post. Pay here to get more to see it. So why would I even bother with a page? It's another free presence. As you've already seen, um, posting to all of it is really fast. I mean, it's little like when I hit publish the show, it's tweet, copy, paste, tweet, Facebook, paste, okay, Modify, share, share to personal page, share to forum, share to other groups, and it all happens about that fast. Done. Right? So you might as well have that extra presence. But here's the bigger reason. I believe that you get much better results with some of your shares on Facebook with compelling pictures. And if you have a personal or if you have a, a page, right, for your business or for your personality, and you post to that, you get the option to decide what image is associated with it, including an image that's not even on the article, which makes it share more, it catches more eyeballs, all that stuff. And you get more chances to clean it up when Facebook is being stupid and pulling the logo off the bottom of a page rather than the image that should be associated with the article. So that's how I do that. And it's actually really easy and really simple. And it matters. I'll also tell you that I think we're approaching an age where you're going to be able to look at a business, see what social media platforms are active on, and know when that business was founded. And it is a disadvantage for me. I, you don't see me using a lot of inter Instagram or Foursquare or a lot of other things that are Slack and stuff like that. I don't know how a lot of that stuff works. And I do realize that at some point I probably need to add a social uh, mechanism or two of the more modern uh, stuff that people are doing now And the only reason I haven't been kicked in the ass hard enough to do it is because most people still use Facebook. 
Most people still have Facebook in their lives. And that means that I can reach almost anybody that's involved in social media at all on Facebook, and that's made it easy to rest on my laurels. But at some point, I'm going to have to branch out and add some additional social media stuff. I, I don't really mess with Instagram primarily because I'm not a heavy image-based guy. I don't do a lot of pictures. And the pictures I do are usually memes and shit like that just to annoy people. And I do do stuff just to annoy people on Facebook, especially on my personal page. And if you don't like it on my personal page, don't be on my personal page. That's all I can say on that. Let's move on. So this next one is uh, quite interesting, and it's, it's bigger, I think, than most people would realize. It comes from Matt. Matt says, I'd love to hear your feedback on this article. It's at usnews.com. Basically, the University of Wisconsin is looking to absorb two-year campuses into four-year campuses, uh, citing a... 32% enrollment decline since 2010. It looks like the death row to the administrative component of two-year schools. So, you know, normally I would read the article to you. There's a link to it if you want to read it yourself. But basically there's 13 public universities in Wisconsin that are four-year degree universities and 13 public schools that are two-year community college-type campuses. And what... The president of University of Wisconsin wants to do is basically merge them, and initially, anyway, it doesn't sound like the two-year schools would close. They would be mated to like a sister school, and it would become like a branch of that sister school, and then it would be the case that if you went to um, University of Wisconsin, blah, 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 uh, community college, you would actually have your credits from University of blah, blah, University uh, of Wisconsin, right? So you would be have the four-year school. That would make all your credits transferable, and it would make more courses available to you than would typically available in a community college. This all sounds great, except for the fact that that little reason why, that little reason why, the enrollment at two-year colleges has gone down by 32% since 2010. 32%. What does that mean? Well, that means everybody's getting a four-year degree. No, you notice they didn't say, we'd like to convert one or two of our two-year schools into four-year schools because we have so many more. No, they're, they, they're not revealing the decline in enrollment. I, I've been through a number of cycles in my life being in my mid-40s that I think younger people maybe are not privy to. And I've seen this before in different businesses and industries across the globe. When you start to see consolidations within an industry, and I don't mean the big fish buying the little fish. I mean the fish eating itself. I mean the owner of a tank, uh, the owner of a tank of fish taking some of the fish out of the tank, basically. It, it only means one thing. It means that the industry itself or the sector is in terminal decline. And they always put a positive spin on it. Uh, we've looked out at our stores and realized some of them are not performing well, and we'll be consolidating operations into one administrative facility. And, and it's like in a couple years, maybe uh, the better part of a decade, that entity, that organization is gone. Or what's left of it is such a shell that it's, it's, it's no longer relevant, Kmart. I'm just saying something like that, right? And that's what's happening here. We're trying to make things better 
by cutting. It's like daylight savings time when somebody told a Native American about daylight savings time. This old Indian, he said, only a white man would think you can get a longer blanket by cutting the bottom off the blanket and sewing it back on the top of the blanket. You don't get more by merging schools together. And it also cites an aging population. It says that the aging population of Wisconsin is projected to grow by up to 90% while there's a decline in the number of college-age kids. Translation, millennials, younger Gen Xers, and mid-Gen Yers are not having children in, in very large numbers. The demographic bomb is also hitting here. All this is is the symptom of the larger disease. The modern education system is outdated, and it's obsolete. And it is only the government that's kept it alive. If, if, the, if the modern education system, and I don't care how cheap you made it, but if it tried to function like it does right now without government, without compulsory education K-12, through without a massive amount of government propaganda into everybody needs to go to college and education is priceless, etc., um, and without an incredible, uh, I mean, absolutely incredible subsidy in the form of government-guaranteed student loans, our educational system would have collapsed a long time ago. And people would say, see, that's all we need to know, for the better, for the better. We live in a world today where the average 16-year-old kid with purple hair and a nose ring has more computing power in their back pocket in the form of an iPhone than the entire bank of computers that were used to put a man on the moon in 1969. The concept that with that much technology, we are still using a mid-1800s methodology for teaching students is ridiculous. And putting laptops or tablets in the school, replacing... You know, the slide projector with a PowerPoint projector for the teacher. Uh, putting some big screens in and putting a lot of movies in schools doesn't change the fundamental underlying reality of how we educate. We have a teacher in charge of a classroom with 18 to 35 students in it who sits there and runs their mouth all day or watches the computer run its mouth now that it doesn't have to talk. The teacher doesn't have to talk. The grades test, and everybody basically functions at a certain level And we can only go so fast, and we can only go so slow, and we have to push them through in a time frame. And everything's about asses in seats. If there's enough asses in seats, there's enough funding, and therefore the school continues. That is such an archaic model. And I know some of you think that I'm anti-teacher, and I'm not. And you're stupid if you think I'm anti-teacher. Um, I just had a teacher at the workshop we just wrapped up that came in, and... She told me, I love what you do, and I love what you have to say about education. And I'm teaching students the best I can in the way that you explain things about the world for as long as they'll let me. And I don't think she has anything to worry about. She'll be there as long as anybody else, and I don't know how long that is. But we, we live in a world today where the only reason education has been held together, apart from the subsidization by government, is that it stands in as freaking daycare. It stands in as daycare. But when the average couple starts having one kid, it gets a lot more manageable to do your own daycare, to set up your own neighborhood groups. And as we move more and more toward where there's, you know, I, I think if we, we are heading back to a primarily one breadwinner household 
in the next 10 years because that's how many jobs are going to be available. So do we really need your daycare? Do we have to start developing our own economies? And can education and the care of children be part of our own economies? You see how that all starts to go? And it's a thread. It's a thread in a tapestry. And it's a tapestry that looks like it's so beautifully woven and so strong it can never come apart. And there's been a guard with a gun protecting that thread that's hanging there that everybody knows shows the weakness of it for so long. But the guard has grown weary. There's so many people reaching for the thread now. He only has so many bullets in his gun. And the crowd's overwhelming him. And someone has grabbed the thread and has begun to run. And all of the people that have been protected by the beautiful tapestry of the state education system are in denial about what's happening. Because it's a big tapestry. And even though that there's you know people running with different threads now from all angles... Most of the tapestry is still there. Most of the tapestry is still there. Just the borders are beginning to erode. But anyone with eyes to see and ears to hear knows the tapestry will vanish within a decade or two. It's too far gone. Government has tried to sustain industries that were obsoleted before. And sooner or later, every single time, it has failed. And then this will cascade to more job loss. Think of the job loss by this. And people think, well, it's teachers. It's teachers. It's janitors. It's administrators. Sports programs. People that print the names of sports teams on plastic footballs for high schools. Do you know how big that industry is? It's millions of dollars. It's the scam of the school supply list. Every parent knows that list is bullshit, but every parent goes out and buys it anyway. How much money is spent just in back-to-school school supplies, half of which are never used? You don't think that's a scam? I mean, seriously, if we took the money that goes into school supplies, we could buy every child a half-assed decent laptop. We wouldn't need paper. And we could save the earth then, right? Yeah. This is done. When you see an industry consolidating itself... By choice, you're watching what, what, what it, in essence is a reverse stock split. If you ever see a company announcing a reverse stock split, that company is effed. There is no rec- that company is going to go into bankruptcy, or they're going to sell what's left of their bones to some sort of harvesting firm that will harvest it without a bankruptcy. They're done. That's what's happening in public education right now. And some redneck hippie duck farmer's been telling you that for over five years, that this is where we're going. This is, you know, people see this as a little jingle of a bell or something. This is a trumpet on a hill that this is happening. But you won't hear about it in mainstream news, and you won't even hear about it other than an article here or there in alternative media, and no one will point to it but me. Because I don't think most people are even looking at this particular ball. They're too entranced with the balls of self-driving cars and electric vehicles and UBI to understand that the education system is a part of all of that mess. Life's going to change. Be ready. This next question comes from Dean, and it's totally different, and that'll be good because that's kind of depressing when we think about 
I, I mean, I don't think it's depressing to think about the education system collapsing. I do think it's depressing to think about the flux of the economy that this is all going to cause and the pain until we figure out what to do with ourselves and how to re rebuild a, a new economy, because that's what we're going to have to do. So let's do something a little bit distracting and fun. And what's more fun than fried food? Dean says, I was thinking of getting a deep fryer for catfish, chicken, or jalapeno poppers, wings, okra, stuff that you typically fry. Once I get to Bed Bath and Beyond, I see a whole slew of air fryers, never used one or heard anything about them. Do you use them, and how are they for making fried food with fried in quotes? Uh, background, years ago I bought one of the George Foreman griddles like a bunch of other people. It was used maybe a dozen times and wound up in the back of my pantry never to be used again. I don't want to make a similar mistake here. So other than using less fat, would there be anything that are especially good at making? I guess I'm really asking if this tool is worth the money. Thanks, Dean. Okay, Dean, I've actually never used an air fryer. I've never even thought about using an air fryer. I did look some up on Amazon, and some ones that look like they have good reviews are about 100 bucks. I look at it, and what I see is another large gadget to take up space in my kitchen. And I have to tell you, Dean, that when I look at deep fryers, electric deep fryers like you're talking about originally getting, I also see another large object that takes space up in my kitchen. I don't like large objects that take space up in my kitchen, especially if they only do one thing. And when we want to deep fry, all we really need is some deep oil to put stuff in and let it fry. If we have a stove, we have a source of heat. If we have a pot, we can fry. So I'll come back to that in a second. Let me say, if you have an, uh, an electric air fryer or whatever the hell it is and you love it, tell me about it. I want to know. Um, it's not that I can't be convinced that a, a single-use thing isn't valuable. And if it can make food good, I want to know about it, even if it's something that I don't generally use because I love to cook. I love to teach people to cook. And I would rather a person eat even fried, breaded food that they made at home than McDonald's. More on why in a bit. Okay, so I'd like to know that. However, I don't actually fry very much because frying, when I talk about deep frying, usually dictates that one batters something. And if one batters something, one has generally dipped it into something like a wheat batter. And if one has done that, then it is certainly not paleo or even low-carb. Though I do make a pretty mean low-carb fried fish, and maybe I'll give the recipe out on another episode. So, since I fry in moderation, and occasionally, look, I'm human. I'll be like, you know what would be good tonight? Some french fries. So we get a potato out, we cut it up into fries, and we fry it. And my number one go-to for frying, deep frying, is my cast iron lodge wok. You might wonder why. Well, the shape of the wok actually is great for deep frying for a variety of reasons. One, it's incredibly efficient at heat transfer, and it does get that hotter bottom and less hot as it comes up the top, and that creates a circulation in your oil. It brings it to an even cooking temperature relatively quickly, and I use a thermometer to see am I at 325, 350, etc., depending on what I'm frying. And then the other thing is you might fry smaller amounts at a time, Okay. But you fry very quickly when you deep fry anyway. So multiple batches are no problem. And about a quart of oil in a, a large full-size wok gives you a nice deep pool. A quart of oil in a fryer, a quart of oil in a like even a big stock pot, barely gives you enough to, to pan fry. It's like you know an inch deep. So the wok's conical shape makes the, the oil deep. And what that lets you do, you fry in your wok, You turn your heat off, 
you set your wok on the back of the stove. You go eat. You relax. The wok cools down. The oil cools down. You set a strainer in the top of a quart jar. Dump the oil back into it. Put the lid on the jar. Market fry oil. Stick it in your pantry in the dark. When you want to fry again, you take that quart of oil back. You dump it back in. It's really easy. Because you're nowhere near full, and it's not that much oil. Now, here's the upside to it. Once you do that, you kind of knock all of the little pieces and parts of fried gizmo, gasmo stuff in your wok. You take a paper towel and you smear the oil all over the wok. You turn the burner on, you heat it up till it just begins to be smoking hot. And you've seasoned your wok even better than before. There's almost no cleanup to it. And then you put your wok back in the wok space, which is a rather large space that it takes up. But my wok does so many other things. What would a deep fryer do for me? A deep fryer deep fries a wok stir fries, a wok deep fries, a wok pan fries. You see where I'm going here? I can make curries in my wok. I can't do any of that shit with a deep fryer. And we had one at one time. And all it did was make it real easy to be lazy and go out and buy pre-breaded crap and throw it in there and get really fat. It's like if I want to deep fry now, like let's say I have a few fish fillets and I want to fry them. I'll be honest, my favorite uh, fish fry breading is Louisiana fish fry. So I'll get some of that, dredge it in some duck egg, roll it in there, and I'll fry with it. You can't use fishy oil when you fry your potatoes or the, whatever. I do. If you don't want to, now you need two quarts of oil. Instead of how many quarts of oil? Eight, twelve? Oil's expensive. When it goes rancid, you need to dump it out and start over. How much oil do you want to dump out at one time? We use our fry oil until I feel like, yeah, it's kind of done its thing long enough now. And I use it as fire starter. I mean... To me, this just makes more sense. Now, again, I still, if you have an air fryer and you love it, tell me what model, tell me why you love it, tell me all about it. But my my advice in general for deep frying is get a wok, learn how to use a wok, and use your wok for deep frying. And you want a wok, if you're going to do that, it's not a flat bottom. It can be flat bottom. Like the, uh, the Lodge wok, one thing that makes it nice, it's it's flat bottom for the stove burner. It doesn't use a ring. But the bottom of the wok itself is concave, completely curved. And that's the wok you want for deep frying because it makes the most efficient use of the oil. So there we go. That should make us a little bit happier now. Let's, let's take a look at something else. Let's talk about something else that makes me happy. Processing deer meat. Processing deer meat makes me very happy. Um, this comes from Zach. Here's Zach's email. He says, hey, Jack, my dad and I are interested in getting some tools to process deer ourselves. Our plan is to keep the back strap and the tenderloin for steaks and shish kebabs. With other meat, we'd like to grind it to burger and sausage. It is our understanding, because we never actually have done this ourselves, that we need some cow fat to grind into burger and pork fat into the sausage. If, if that's accurate, what would you recommend for doing this? He'd like to spend $300 to $400. Do you have any secrets or tips for us? I seem to remember you mentioned partially freezing meat so it grinds better. I also want to try Bill Tong. Thanks for your time, the show, and hopefully your response. Zach. Zach's a great question, formatted very well, where I know exactly what you want to know, and I can do the best I can to help you. Other people should follow your example and your question. Bottom line up front, details that are specific. Great job. So let's start off talking about 
the grinders I would recommend. I had a pretty decent grinder, and I was going to upgrade to a grinder that I'm going to recommend that you consider at your budget at the top end. And you can even come down from it a little bit if you find it to be pushing the edge of your budget. Uh, it is the Cabela's commercial grade one horsepower grinder. And it is awesome. I've used this grinder one time, it's 500 bucks. So, you know, you, you think you said three to four hundred bucks there. You can get the three quarter horse one, which is one step down for it, for right about four hundred dollars. If you're going to spend that much from using this grinder, I kind of recommend upgrading to it uh, because it is so amazing. It's the Cabela's Carnivore Commercial Grade One Horsepower Grinder. I have a link in the show notes. If you want to save a little bit of money and go with the three quarter horse, I think you'll be happy to. I used Kevin Keegan's. I ground. 140 pounds of pork with it in about 20 minutes. It was took more time to get the meat into the grinder than to get it to come out of the grinder. It was that awesome. The other thing I would say, though, is like how many... Because like I'm not a big believer in spending money you don't have to spend. Okay? So how many deer are you going to process? If you're going to process three or four deer a year, I might... Do this. If you're going to process two deer a year, I would not spend 500 bucks. And I was going to do it. I was going to do it. Well, my other pretty good grinder had to go to Grinder Heaven. Uh, and to be fair, it was like a grinder I had bought at a swap meet like 20 years ago. God knows how long it had been since, you know, before it got there. So they don't make it anymore. And when I went to Grinder Heaven about a year ago, I decided that I just would grind meat with my little um, cast iron Hank Wright grinder. And I went to a process that I, I still continue to this day some, and that is a lot of times I don't grind meat at all. I cut up all my cuts of meat, and I'll talk about that in a second. And all the stuff that would be burger, I, I trim pretty good, and I put in one-pound sacks as cubes, and I market stew meat. And then if I want to take that meat and grind it, I can always grind a pound or two or three pounds of meat at a time. But I, if, I, if I did that with 30 pounds of meat, and all of a sudden I decide I want to make deer stew, well, that's nice. That's really nice, but you can't put it back together. So unless I'm making a lot of ground meat for a specific reason, I tend not to grind it all at once. This year I ended up in a situation I didn't have time to mess around. And I had a pig and a deer at the same time. And it was going to come out to a, a blend of about 40% pork and 60% venison. And it was pretty fatty pig for a wild pig. I thought, this is great. So I ground it all. I mixed it together. I put it in one-pound packs. I think I ended up with 19 pounds of meat. I, I freezer-wrapped it, what do you call it, uh, vacuum-sealed it, and froze it. And if I decide I want to do two pounds of meat for chili, I'll just take two packs out. And I'll flavor it for chili. If I want to make some sausage, I'll flavor it for sausage, adding fat. It's not a terrible thing. It's also not necessary, depending on what you're going to do. If you're going to make a true sausage, I would recommend adding fat. Here's one easy way to add fat. I knew this guy up in Arkansas that shot about 15 deer a year. He made a lot of ground meat. He bought all of his beef at Sam's Club because they don't have Costco in Arkansas. Gee, I wonder why. And he would buy whole ribeyes to cut ribeye steaks out of which would save him money. 
and there'd be a big fat cap on that. So he'd take his knife when he was getting ready to cut up his steaks, and he'd cut a big old hunk of that fat cap off. Probably get two pounds of fat, he'd cube it up, he'd throw it in a, a, a vacuum seal bag, vacuum seal it, mark it as what it was, throw it in the freezer. Whenever he would go to grind deer meat, he would just say, let's see if I want 10% fat, and I have 20 pounds of deer meat, I'll take two one-pound packs of beef fat out, and I'll grind it. We'll talk about the whole frozen thing in just a minute. And he'd grind his beef fat into his deer meat. When I was a kid, what we always did is we went to um, the just the plain old grocery store, and unlike my uh, Arkansas redneck buddy, instead of a pure fat edition, we did a fatty pork edition. We would just buy pork butt roast, which was about the cheapest pork you could get. And back then, it was really cheap. It was like 69 cents a pound back then. And the butcher would grind it, because they actually had real butchers at grocery stores that did real butchering, uh, would grind it coarse if you wanted it, fine if you wanted it, etc. So we never ground pork. We would go down, we would say, you know, we're going to make 30 pounds of sausage, or 30 pounds of meat, so we want uh, 25% pork addition. So then we'd work that out, 2.5 pounds to 10, 7.5 pounds, so probably by 8 Right in the neighborhood of eight pounds of pork butt roast. And we'd probably buy nine because there's usually bits of bone in there and stuff. And they'd say, well, you want us to, you know, we'll just he'd bring it out. Here it is. Well, where's the bones? Oh, you're going to throw those away. No, you're not. Bring me my bones, right? I paid for them. And they bring us the bones and we make stock or give them to the dogs or whatever. And we take that. We would grind our deer meat and mix that in. And we would make burger or sausage. And, and we did that as a matter of course. So it didn't matter if I was making burgers I mixed pork butt in. If I was making sausage, I mixed pork butt in. If I was doing ground deer meat to put in the freezer to take out and do something with later, we put pork butt in. My buddy up in Arkansas, he puts beef fat in all the time to add fat because you got to have it. This gets me to one of the places as I become more sophisticated with my cooking to a realm of bullshit that I think is self-made. I can take plain old deer meat, grind it up, add a little salt and pepper, make a burger, put it on the grill, cook you a deer meat burger, and you will eat it and you will think it was fantastic with no added fat at all. Why? Because there is fat in deer meat. It's probably in the neighborhood of 7% overall. You don't see it, but it's there. Any animal with that much protein has to have a certain amount of fat or it will die. There is some fat on it, deer. It's tallow. You can't eat it. Freeze it. Put it through your grinder. Mix it in your freaking deer meat. It tastes just fine. So when I'm when I'm butchering a deer, and everybody's cutting everything off, I cut off the bigger pieces of tallow, and I either render them, and then strain them into a jar and use it for cooking and other things, or I cut it into pieces and I throw it right in with my cubes, and I grind it right into my deer meat, and I do the same thing with pigs because tallow is fat okay so that's how I do it I don't add fat anymore unless I decide I want to make a specific sausage that calls for a specific amount of added fat and then I'll do it which means now even when I grind I grind my meat in a one pound package and I put them in the freezer if I want to make sausage I'll take it out I'll defrost it I'll mix some fat and other seasonings into it and I'll make sausage but I can take that pork deer mixture out I can add some you know, Italian seasonings, some sage, some fennel, some crushed red pepper, some salt, some pepper, garlic and onion, and make a damn good um, sage breakfast sausage and not add any fat at all. 
deer meat and wild game doesn't dry out because it doesn't have enough fat in it. It dries out because we overcook it. That's, that's just the fundamental reality. And adding fat can allow us to overcook it a little bit and not dry it out. But it can't prevent us from drying it out if we still completely overcook it, if that makes sense. So that's my approach. You can add any fat you wanted to. Freezing the meat. I buy these big meat tubs. I think they're like 11 or 12 gallon gray tubs. We get them at a place called Bassamer Market or Bashir Market or something like that. It's like a whole food, uh, a wholesale food thing that a lot of small restaurants use and all. Uh, you don't have to have any kind of paperwork. There's restaurant supply places. You can probably find them just about anywhere. But there's a big, they're big, you know, kind of rubber made like food grade tubs. I take one of those. I throw all my meat, all my fat. If I'm a lot of times I grind liver if it's going to go into sausage. Cube up the liver. I throw it all in. I start right in the freezer. And when it's almost frozen, so you go and you check. Like you don't want to freeze it until it's a block and you can't get it apart. It's like a giant, you know, meat frozen iceberg. When you can still pull it apart, and I'll even do this. Like I'll go through it, and like if a lot of it's kind of hard frozen, I'll pull all that out, stick it in another tub, and I'll leave the stuff that's not quite as frozen as I like in there while I start grinding the first batch. And by the time I'm done with that, that'll have gotten a lot more frozen. I've reduced the volume. If there's a ton of it, instead of filling that tub up, I'll fill that tub like a third. And I'll fill a second tub like a third. It'll go faster. Put it in my deep freezer, my main freezer, whatever, and you get it frozen. I'll take the, the screw and the blade and the size uh, faceplate, because usually your grinders will come with a fine, a coarse, and a medium grinder plate. Because the, the blade will, the screw pushes the meat through, the blade cuts the meat into small pieces. And the plate that the blade goes up against has different size holes in it, and that determines what size gets extruded through and the, how, how fine or coarse your grind is. I'll take all three of those pieces. I'll put them in the freezer, too. If I could, I'd put the whole damn grinder in there. I want everything cold. I'll put it back together. Then I get my meat out. Frozen, half-frozen meat right in the grinder. It will grind beautifully. If you try to grind fat and you don't pre-freeze it, it will come out like snot. If you try to ground pork, and you don't get it really cold to pre-frozen, it will come out like snot. Deer meat will come out sort of like snot, but not quite. I don't want snot, I want ground meat. Pre-freeze your meat. This will bring me back to my, well, what if you're only going to be doing a couple, three deer a year? Uh, my grinder went to grinder heaven, so I borrowed a grinder off of uh, David Siegler, And it was the Waring Pro M100. I was impressed. It was it as good as the Cabela's Carnivore? No. No. No, 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 no. But I put about 19 pounds of meat through it in probably about 15 minutes. A little more than a minute a pound. I'm not willing to pay $500 to go faster if I'm only going to use it a couple times a year. So I found the closest Waring Pro grinder to that model they still make. And it looks like it's identical. It's the Waring Pro MG105. It's like $58. Bucks. So I got a $500 grinder that's like borderline as good as a commercial grinder where you drop your deer off. 
and I got a $58 grinder with free shipping on Amazon Prime that's damn good enough to grind, you know, 10 to 30 pounds of meat at a time, especially if you do everything I just said. Which one do you think I'm going to buy? You know, if I, if I end up with 20 acres of my own land and I'm accidentally dropping deer into my freezer by accident throughout the year and I have to grind 10 deer a year or 15 deer a year, if Dorothy starts filling out her deer tags, right, when she doesn't hunt, you get my drift, I, I, I'm going to step up to, like, at least the three-quarter horse Cabela's for 400 bucks. If I'm going to be grinding a couple, three deer a year, and maybe one or two pigs, I, I'm going to stick with the Warring Pro. That's my full philosophy on that. But let me just make sure that you don't get up confused all this. You can add pork fat or beef fat to deer at any ratio that you please. It will change the flavor. A reason a lot of people use the beef fat. Beef and venison actually has a very similar profile and flavor. And a lot of the flavor in beef comes from the fat. So beef fat added into deer meat, to the exclusion of the beef itself, makes a lot of sense if that's what you want to do. And again, I think the concept of, you know, go out a couple times a year, and instead of buying, you know, two steaks at a time for dinner, buy a big full cut, cut a bunch of that fat off, that fat cap off. When you buy a brisket, and you're a smoke a brisket, the, the fat cap's huge. You can afford to take a lot off of I usually take, you know, probably 20 to 30% off the fat cap off a brisket. It's several pounds before I smoke it. Because otherwise, it's just too much. Freeze it. Save it up. And if you cube it right, lay it out on a pan like cookies, stick it in your freezer, got it? When it's, when it's frozen solid, put it in your freezer bag, seal it up, put it back in there, mark it. When you want to grind it, you can leave it completely frozen because it'll be in pieces small enough to fit in the grinder. It'll grind gorgeously, gorgeously. You'll learn a lot from Arkansas rednecks, even if you're a Texas redneck. With that, let's take another one. So this next question comes from, um, let's see, that one was Zach. So this one is from Stefan. Stefan says, what is it specifically about processed foods that make them so bad for you? Details in a lot of your shows, you talk about how processed foods are all unhealthy. I would like to know more specifics. <clears throat> it doesn't logically make sense that processed foods are inherently bad just because a machine made them instead of a human. I assume it's something to do with the chemicals and preservatives used, but I'd like to know more. Which chemicals are the worst offenders and exactly how do they do their damage to the body? Thanks for what you're doing, man. I love the show. Stefan, this is a, uh, a well-thought-out logical question. I applaud you for it. And, and you're, you're like halfway to the answer all by yourself because processed food doesn't mean that it was made by a machine, even though most processed foods are made by a machine. When I and other people are giving dietary advice and we rail against processed foods, trust me, it's not the machine we have a problem with. It's the things that the machine is putting into the food and specifically the things that are done to the food to make it shelf stable. Very, very important. Before I go into this, I have nine specific reasons that I personally feel processed foods are bad for people and should never be consumed. I'm not going to say I never consume any of them, okay? Um, and when we talk about the nine reasons, it'll become abundantly evident as to why, i.e., they taste good in some instances anyway. Um But to drive this point home with the, the thing that I'm going to lead off on, 
I want to play for you a, a piece from a guy named JP. And he has a YouTube channel called Awaken with JP. And probably his most successful component of that channel is a, a little series he calls Ultra Spiritual Life where he's very uh, sarcastic. You know, he'll make a case for something while actually making a case against it. And I don't really like everything he does or agree with every opinion he has, but man, in this case, I am completely on board, and I love the way he explains you know, our current nutritional advice around fats and vegetable oils and things like that. So let me go ahead and let you hear this. Listen up. The American Heart Association recently announced that coconut oil is bad for you. I'm a little angry that it took them this long to tell us. Before I found out, I was so misinformed that I spent years accidentally being healthy from eating coconut oil. I feel like an idiot. But I appreciate the American Heart Association for telling me I was mistaken all this time. You know what? Coconut oil is so terrible for you that even talking about it is bad for your health. So I'm going to make this brief. If there's one company whose advice I want to follow when it comes to eating fats, it's the American Heart Association. Under the American Heart Association's watch, it's estimated that one out of every two Americans will get heart disease in their lifetime. That's like if they were a skydiving instructor and one out of every two of their students gets a malfunctioning parachute and dies. That's the exact skydiving instructor that I want to take lessons from. I mean, they're a way better instructor than those who have two out of every two students die. And besides, one out of every two being taken out, that basically just weeds out the bad students. The French are known for eating high levels of saturated fat, yet they're the country with the lowest rate of heart disease. This just goes to show you one thing. The French are snobs. They just turn their noses up at our American ways. It's so disrespectful. The American Heart Association is American, so don't you dare question their integrity because nothing corrupt happens in America, especially in the food industry, and really especially when there's big money involved. The American Heart Association earned $774 million in revenue in 2014, and I think it's safe to assume that most of this money is spent on corruption security prevention strategies which basically means we can trust them blindly. And if you don't think that you can stop thinking for yourself and trust the noble business people at the American Heart Association, then you don't like America. And that would mean you're a terrorist. Hashtag W. Bush. Hashtag what would Bush say? Now, there's a little unfair confusion because of the fact that for years, the American Heart Association endorsed food products with hydrogenated oils and trans fats with their heart-checked logo. These trans fats are literally the worst thing for your heart. And given that the American Heart Association pretends that they never gave people the worst possible heart advice, it means they have enough integrity to act like it never happened. I think that's called the Mandela Effect. Because coconut oil obviously wants to kill you, what kind of fats does the American Heart Association recommend? Vegetable oils and margarine. Obviously. I enjoy consuming vegetable oils because they're incredibly unstable and they cause a tremendous amount of inflammation and free radical damage in my cardiovascular system, which is great for me from what I'm told to tell myself. But let me amp it up for you. I'm going to show you the exact science of how vegetable oils are healthy for your heart. 
I made this diagram myself. Number one, the U.S. doesn't grow much in the way of coconuts, so there's not much money to be made in the currency of coconuts, given our mostly non-tropical climate. It's raining right now. Number two, but the U.S. does have untold amounts of farmland that's great for growing corn, soy, and canola. So we do that and have lots of vegetable oils that are made out of grains, not actual vegetables. Which brings us to number three. The U.S. has lots of money to be made from selling vegetable oils. Number four, the Soybean Board and the U.S. Canola Association are in the American Heart Association's Nutrition Advisory Panel, which takes us to number five. The American Heart Association then altruistically tells everybody that they should buy vegetable oil and not by its non-domestic competition, coconut oil. Number six, this all equates to vegetable oils are good for your health, coconut oil is bad for your health. And I underline vegetable oils equal healthy twice, so you know it's a fact. Hashtag health science. You've just been schooled, son. Any questions? And now you can conform better to thinking what you're told to think about dietary fats. Okay, I brought that humor in so that I could talk about this and not have it be like snore boring. I'm back in health class in, in high school or something because I want to start out with the fat issue because it's one of my biggest concerns with uh, I'm sorry with uh, processed foods. So to understand the whole issue with fats and one of my nine reasons is that processed foods are often high in trans fats or processed vegetable oil. Before we can get into that, we got to kind of understand what fat is and how it's derived. There's three fats in in nature. And a lot of things have some of both or a little bit of both or, or what have you. But the first one is saturated fat. And it's the one that gets the biggest bad rap in nutritional advice from government, which you just heard how ridiculous that advice is. Um, but it butter, lard, animal-derived fats, coconut oil also is mostly a saturated fat. It has actually some monounsaturated and some polyunsaturated, but its dominant fat comes from saturated fats. Those, I believe, are the most inherently healthy fats for human beings to eat because they are the ones that we would we would most eat in a natural diet, i.e. animals. That would be where, if we went back to living like we did before the dawn of modern agriculture, almost all of the fat intake we have would be from animals. Then there are monosaturated fats, and if you think about this, um, they come from things like olives, which in themselves are a food. Uh, also, canola oil is a monosaturated fat, and I see these fats as healthy fats as well. And though I, I, I hesitate to recommend canola oil because of other problems with canola that I'll leave out for today. Then there's what's called polyunsaturated fats. These are the ones that get an even more screwed up rap because of a misunderstanding about them in our world today. And these are mostly your omega-6 oils that come from things like sunflower and safflower oil and omega-3 oils that come from things like fish and flaxseed. And a lot of people say, well, six is bad and three is good. No, no, you need balance of the two. They're both essential fatty acids or EFAs, and we need both of them in our diet. What we don't need is, let's say, three times as much omega-6 as omega-3. You want to get much more close to a balance there. Well, we have these three great types of fats that all have their own place in the world that do good things for the body in the right ratios. 
But when we're going to make a Frito and it's going to go in a bag and it's going to sit on the shelf and it wants to be crunchy eight months from now and not taste rancid, there's a problem there. All of these fats stored unrefrigerated or without certain other things done to them become rancid. And if we're putting them into something that's supposed to be crunchy, we'll become soft and mealy. So they came up with a process called hydrogenation. And what they're doing is they're forcing a chemical addition of hydrogen into omega-6 polyunsaturated oils to make them hard at room temperature, and that's primarily to make them cheaper and less perishable as a substitute for butter and crispy bread products and things like that. Uh, other things they do this with are cottonseed oil, palm oil, soy oil, and corn oil, but you could do it with any polyunsaturated oil. You could hydrogenate it. If you look on the label of just about any processed food, you're going to see partially hydrogenated palm, soy, corn. You're going to see that there. So that's in your processed foods. This stuff is incredibly damaging to the body. Um, it's basically what JP was saying. Well, you know, you, you gave people the uh, the worst possible dietary fat, uh, you know. Uh, advice that you could possibly give them for years and they just pretend that it never happened. That's what he's talking about, right? So processed foods are high in trans fats and processed vegetable oils. Not because they hate you, but because that's how they make the food last. The next one is it requires less energy and time to di digest processed foods. Generally, they've been, since they're highly processed, they've had a lot of fiber removed from them. Your body's able to digest them more quickly. Therefore, they create spikes in blood sugar. Therefore, you're more likely to be hungry faster. Because your body uses less energy to process them because they've already been partially processed, you get a higher caloric load and it's led to a epidemic of obesity. Uh, next, kind of tying in with that, they're low in fiber. For what they are, uh, specifically high carbohydrate foods. Let's go back to, like I said, if you were living naturally and, and deriving food from the earth, that almost all the fat you got would be animal-derived, or if you were fortunate enough to live in certain areas, you might get very good healthy fats from things like avocados uh, and olives and some nuts. But you're only going to eat so much nuts in the wild. I'm sorry. There's an energy curve. to There's a certain amount of effort it takes to harvest nuts, and they're only available certain amounts of time, and they only last so long in storage. Um, but in all of those instances, there's some mitigation to how much you can have, leading you to a natural dietary path that most of your fat comes from organ meats from animals and marrow from animals, which for humans got all their, not all their fat, most of their fat prior to the dawn of agriculture. And that's what we evolved to do. Well, it's almost like nature knows what it's doing. And one of the other truths is that if you're eating any high-carbohydrate food in nature, you would not be refining sugar out of sugar cane or beets. You would be eating something like fruit. And while fruit's not huge in fiber, it has a, a, a significant amount of fiber to go along with the carbohydrate. When there's fiber taken in combination with carbohydrate, it slows down the body's absorption of the carbohydrate. This reduces insulin spikes. This reduces insulin response. This has a, as a natural buffer against developing insulin resistance. This keeps glycogen levels at a, a reasonable level in the blood to balance insulin levels and at least overall health. Processed foods, we strip all of that fiber that acts as that natural buffer out. Think of it like a pH buffer in soil. 
If we're growing something in a pure hydroponics environment, we have to be really careful about the, uh, the pH of the water. If we grow it in soil, it's much more forgiving because the soil acts as a, as a natural buffer. Just as fiber acts as a natural buffer for carbohydrate insulin spikes. Next is most processed foods are low in nutrients. So it's not just that they're processed and they have all this shit in them. It's that they've stripped so much out, you're eating empty calories. If you look at the amount of natural food necessary to sustain a 2,000-calorie diet versus the amount of processed food necessary to have a 2,000-calorie diet, and the nutrient density difference is huge. So it's what you're not getting when you're just getting carbohydrates. On top of all this, then they're high in refined carbohydrates. That's my next reason. So we have not just carbohydrates, but since we've removed the fiber, we have a refined carbohydrate, which again is very easy for the body to take in. And the problem with this, though, is not just all the other things I said. It leads to carb cravings a few hours after you've eaten it. Have you ever eaten a really good meal, vegetables, salad, meat, and been like, I can't eat another bite? But then they roll out the dessert tray, and there's that piece of cake, and all of a sudden you can eat that piece of cake. Because it's an entirely different type of food, and it was never meant for our, us to consume, and I'm not a cake Nazi, but we shouldn't be eating it daily. And the fact that you can't eat that piece of cake when you can't put another piece of steak in your mouth tells you all you need to know about this. Well, if we eat basically cake, which is what most processed food is, if you actually look at how much sugar is in it, it might as well be a piece of cake. Because of this phenomenon where we can consume these surplus calories in high-refined carbohydrates, which was an evolutionary adaptation so we could shove lots of plums into our plum hole and put fat on before winter in the, in the darth, the time of little, that we would be going into in winter when we had to live like you know, natural human beings in a natural earth, our body developed the ability to cram these things in. Well, when we cram them in our cram hole repeatedly, we end up developing a fiending for them, an addiction to them. And that means that we'll often eat more times a day and far more calories a day when we're eating, when we're eating processed foods, even if we portion it correctly. It's the whole, I just ate, but now I'm hungry again scenario. That comes from processed foods, and it comes from it in droves. The next one is, because of all of that, people can become addicted. I mean, they literally have food addictions. Before I broke mine, if I didn't eat for long enough, I got sweaty, I got shakes, I got my stomach was achy, and some of that's hypoglycemia. But in the end, if you looked at the way I was, compared to an addict that couldn't get their next bit of morphine or you know opium or whatever, I look the same because it is the same. And you don't get addicted eating whole foods. You do become addicted eating processed foods. So that's my next one. My eighth one is they're hyper-rewarding. And that leads to overconsumption because of all the things I've talked about up till now, specifically the, the need to put fat on going into winter in the real world, devoid of a Whole Foods or an Albertsons or Kroger's on every corner, devoid of food in a box, devoid of, you know, 10,000 acres run by four machines and one guy producing enough food to supply a small town, devoid of that, you had to put that fat on. That's the only way that your body could maintain itself 
through that Darth period where you were eating mostly lean proteins and, and other fibrous things that, that, that stored well. Your body could live on it, stored fat until the spring came and things came back that we could go ahead and get a hold of good fatty fats once again. And that means that the entire sensation of eating that food is hyper-rewarding, which is why it becomes addictive. But even if we're not an addict, the hyper-rewarding thing still affects us. And my number one reason is that processed foods are usually high in sugar and specifically high fructose corn syrup. And I defy you to get any processed food. I'll, I'll put it to you this way because any might be a stretch. And one of you going to write me one of those emails where you pound the keyboard like this. That email, right? So um, if I say any, I'll get a hate email. I looked at this and it didn't have it and you're wrong. And you get a life. If you get... Go to the grocery store, and you pull 10 random processed foods off the shelf, which is primarily the entire center of the grocery store, 8 out of 10 or more will have fructose corn syrup or high fructose corn syrup in the ingredients. This is pure, I, I don't even know what the word I want to say, it's, it's pure evil in my, but that's not chemically what it is. It's, it's a pure altered sugar that does terrible things to the body. So that's, you want specifics. That's, that's as good as I can do. And uh, I, I try not to make it boring and like a nutrition class. But, I mean, I think people need to understand this. Because we do just say processed foods are bad. And if processed food means to you that a, the machine like, like ground it up and put it back together and that's all it means, yeah, you would say like, that's stupid. And I would agree. But the whole point is we want the food to be tasty after it sits on a shelf for 6 to 12 months or more. And to do that, we have to get very clever with what we do. And, and, and the last piece of this is that when we take high fat and high sugar and we put them together, the, the addictive components of, of carbohydrates and insulin resistance and high reward goes into hyperdrive with fat. And I don't believe that the, the food industry initially did this because they knew that. But I think as they tried to make food shelf stable, they figured it out. And I do believe that today they add sugar and fat to items, not just to make them taste better, but to increase the addiction level that people have on them because that's good for their repeat business. And I know that sounds conspiratorial, but in this day and age, with all that we know, There is not a more logical conclusion that you can draw when you look at how much of this shit they shove into these foods. When you look at you know fast food restaurants that are adding sugar to french fries. Not enough to taste. You don't eat it and go, oh, there's sugar on there. You don't even know there's sugar. Why would you add a substance like sugar that doesn't add preservative properties at all, that has no direct flavor enhancement, I could give you a French fry with sugar, a little bit of sugar added, and a French fry without it. Your, your taste buds couldn't tell you the difference. But that little added spike makes you go, yes, I'll supersize it. Man, I'm craving some more of those. Why else would you do it? There isn't another answer. And when we eliminate the improbable, the remainder, no matter how, when we eliminate the impossible, The remainder, no matter how improbable it sounds, is probably the answer. You know, that's just reality. 
Okay, let's go with a totally different direction. Tim has a question for me on growing walnuts and growing other things around them, an evil juglone, right, that people freak out about. says, um, Jack, I want to have some nut production on my property. My family has pecan trees that produce prolifically, so I want to try walnuts. Details. I live near Zone 8A, southeastern North Carolina. I've read that walnuts produce chemical in their leaves that kills most vegetation around it. Searching the internet for walnut guilds, I found this page, the best walnut uh, guild in permaculture. Uh, if you go all the way to the bottom before you get to the advertisements, there's an author's recommendation for plants that can withstand or are immune to toxins of the walnut tree produces. These are things I want to grow on my property anyway, so win-win. Straight talk. Really just looking for your commentary about placing a couple walnut trees and anything I might be missing by placing them on my two-third acre property with a house. I'm fine with those being the main trees on the property with supporting bushes and vines surrounding them. Thanks for all you do, Tim. That's uh, a fine idea if that's what you want to do. Uh, I will give you the irony here. That evil substance, that to toxic substance I mentioned, is called juglone, J-U-G-L-O-N-E. It is uh, what makes the tree part of its family, the juglonus uh, family of trees, which includes walnuts and hickory nuts and butternuts. And dun, 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 pecans, yes, the very pecans that your family is growing, also contain this same evil substance that is so over-concerned with that I just don't understand. Now, it is true that different juglonus species, or family, I should say, produce different levels of juglone. Probably the most uh, prolific producer of this substance is black walnut, and mostly it is produced heavily And black walnut husks and leaves, especially as the leaves change color, fall to the ground and release that chemical. Let's talk about this toxic chemical. Is it really toxic? And what is its real purpose? It isn't to be evil. And in the northeastern woods, there's tremendously large forests with black walnut and hickory and what have you. Butternut is part of them. And yet there's all kinds of things growing in that forest. What they actually do is they retard the growth of competing species so that that tree can get up to canopy height and dominate the canopy. It is a competitive advantage, just as oaks do with certain amounts of tannins, although they affect less of other vegetation around them than juglonus species do. And I always found this to be overblown because here's the reality. Where I grew up with my grandparents in Pennsylvania, We had five, count them five, very large, beautiful black walnut trees uh, that were kind of like they, there was a big bank. A big, it was from a stripping hole, so they had dug out dirt uh, way, 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 way back uh, and piled it up on the back border of the property. And my grandfather had gone and planted from seed black walnuts all like right at the base of that hill all the way down the property, five of them spaced out pretty far. And then just to the left of that, as you were looking from the house, there was a nice flat spot below the driveway. And that's where we had our roughly two-tenths of an acre garden. It was surrounded by black walnuts on, I'd say, two sides, really, kind of like, like flanking it. And there was lots of grass and clover and things like that. And, yeah, there was a little bit of bare ground right underneath the walnut trees at times of the year. But even in the, with that, in the peak of summer, some of the clover and stuff got in there and grew right up along the walnut tree trunks. And our tomatoes were so big you could hit somebody in the face with them and knock them out. And, you know, our peppers were huge. And we grew more cucumbers than my grandmother could can. We grew so much squash that we used to, we were the people that actually did put it in your car if you didn't lock the door. 
and, and all these plants that are supposed we had a beautiful asparagus patch, you know, pretty close to the walnut trees. Asparagus is deathly afraid of juglone, and they all lived and did well. Why? Because there was a lawn between them, and they weren't dropping their leaves straight into the garden, and that's about it. We didn't use the leaves in compost. We didn't do a lot of composting with leaves. We did mostly hay and straw and horse manure from the people across the street that had a horse. Um, so most of the leaves my grandmother raked up into big piles, and much to my grandfather's dismay, set them on fire every year because any other solution was not good enough for her. I think she used to just like to make fires. And I remember being on top of the mountain, miles from home, and seeing, I thought the whole town was on fire. I got home, it was my grandmother burning leaves. And that's when I learned about how back, you know, 40 years before I was born, she set almost the whole back valley on fire, but that was not enough to stop her. So that, all of that led me to believe this, this was overhyped. And these, yeah, if you planted a juglone tree over your garden, so it was dropping leaves and husk directly into your garden, or somehow you created nutrient flows that directly pushed it into your garden, that would be bad. But otherwise, you should just relax. That's how I feel about it today. So if you want to put it on your two-thirds, that's fine. But two-thirds of an acre and three walnut trees, at some point when they hit some serious maturity, um, yeah, you're not going to have much else. Even these other trees that grow okay, not going to be a lot of space for them. I do agree with much of the guild. I have a link to that article in the show notes for people that want to see it. I have two other sources. I have much more extensive lists of juglone-resistant plants, and this is how I actually feel the best thing you can do is. The gilding is not so much for the typical guild. It is to create a juglone absorption zone. Just like all of that you know, clover and grass and everything that could survive the juglone created a buffer zone from our garden, If we plant things like Eliagnus, which are your autumn olives, and one of the things listed there, and blueberries. You can't grow blueberries in this blueberry bush is growing right next to the freaking, you know, hickory tree, which is also a juglone species. It's like, I, I don't know how to help you with this. Black cherry, uh, wild black cherries, what I'm talking about here, grows just fine. Wild persimmon grows okay if it's like to the outside. So creating these buffer zones so that your plants that don't want any of it Basically what happens is whenever you have a nutrient flow, the majority of it is going to be sucked up by the plants closest to it. So the immune plants suck it up. They don't really redistribute it. So your, your cherry tree that gets a lot of juglone into its system from the walnut tree next to it, when it drops its leaf, it doesn't really pass it on. It gets synthesized out in the system of the tree. And that's actually what's happened. The tree just basically transforms it into something else. So that, that's the approach I would take. So you can still have some other stuff that's a little bit sensitive if you want. My bigger concern is how much space they'll take. But if you're okay with that, that's fine. But I don't think people should be afraid of walnuts and pecans and things like that over the June one. I think it's way freaking overblown. Let's take another one. So the uh, next one comes from Brandon, and he says... Um, Question for Jack. My question in regarding luminescent solar collectors, are they worth the investment? My wife sent me a video featuring a greenhouse whose panels also served as PV panels for electricity production, yet were transparent enough to allow filtered light to reach the plants. It seems these might qualify for certain federal programs to help offset the cost of installation as well. Just curious what your thoughts were, Brandon. And I had to say, like, can I see one? So he sent me this article, and uh, you can take a look at it. I didn't get any pricing information, though, so I don't know what they cost, um, which makes it a little bit more difficult to, you know, kind of drill down on what the value is. 
Well, the basic concept is this. We have a greenhouse glass, and it's like a two-pane glass. And in between those two panes of glass is, is a red photovoltaic element that's able to be excited by solar rays, just like any photovoltaic element, and generate electricity. And this will do things like run fans in our greenhouse. Um, it might somewhat kind of sort of supplement overnight heat in a greenhouse, a heated greenhouse. Um, it mentions in the article that it can provide electricity for heat, but I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical because PV on the best day is not that great for heating anything. Uh, in a indirect, you know, generate electricity, then convert it to heat. I mean, there's much better ways to generate heat from solar with a direct heat production type of a storage thermal battery system where we take some pipes and we put it in the ground. And we have a low pipe and a high pipe. And during the winter, we have a little fan that runs. And it sucks hot air from the top of the greenhouse, right? Actually, we, it's completely opposite of what you said. In the, in the summer, it sucks hot air from the top of the greenhouse, puts it in the ground. And it discharges cool air out the, the lower pipe. And then we flip that around in the winter. We pull air in through the cool pipe, the low pipe, and we bring the stored energy in the ground back out. Certainly, these could run that little fan. It uses hardly any, any energy at all. It's a very small fan. But lighting and stuff like that, um, actuators to do automation and stuff, sure. And it probably could do that. Is it worth the investment? I don't know what it costs. If it's more than twice what you would use otherwise, probably not. Um, I, I don't know what its efficiency level is at this current juncture. And it would probably be less expensive right now to buy regular greenhouse glass glazing panels, film, whatever you're going to use, and set up a couple, you know, 250-watt solar panels on the ground next to your greenhouse for now. And I think that's where we're at. I'm covering this because I think this is a bigger long-term thing than people realize. I think this is the future of photovoltaics, not greenhouse in of itself. This is the same concept of Elon Musk and Tesla building a freaking shingle for a house that's also a solar panel that has a life expectancy as long as any solar panel and longer than any shingle with a seven-year payback. And are you going to go and rip your roof off and put these on tomorrow? No. But as that efficiency increases and that cost comes down, It's going to get to the point where in a new build or a roof replacement, you're an idiot if you don't put the solar shingles in. Because they last longer and they pay themselves off in seven years. And everything you get off of them after that seven years, now how do they pay themselves off that fast? Because you had to buy the shingles anyway. You had to buy the glass anyway. You had to buy the greenhouse glazing anyway. And they're already developing technologies like this for our big industrial buildings, that those big shiny mirror-like windows that we like to look at and amaze ourselves at what we can do also do this. And this is the future of solar. It will be integrated into everything which will mitigate the cost because the underlying cost of the object must be expended anyway. And this is where we end up with a wired world, and this is where we start to see the true decline of fossil fuels. Not the inevitable 
you know, complete elimination of them to nothingness in 10 years, like Tony Seba said, the show I did on that where I gave my view of it and gave his and some conflated the two, I don't believe that. But yeah, this is, this is a big piece of how it happens. I mean, you have to think about this. Why wouldn't you, if you had the money, spend more for shingles for your roof if that differential was paid back to you within seven years and your roof lasted longer? Even if you're going to sell the house in five. Because you know it makes the house more marketable and sell for more money. There's just no. If you were building, you would never not do it. If you mathematically worked it out right now, you would use their shingles. Give it, give it five years. Give it five years. They will push the price to maybe 20% more than cheap, you know, tar shingles. And at that point, no one. No, why would you ever? Even if you didn't have the infrastructure, you put a new roof on a house. Just go ahead and put those up there. They last longer anyway. And someday we'll hook up to them. So I don't know that the greenhouse has got... Now, what's interesting is this article says, for some unknown reason, um, a large number of the plants that they grew didn't just grow as well as with regular greenhouse glass. They grew better. Well, I can tell you why. Because plants like filtered light. And they're filtering out the wavelengths that the plants really don't use. And in doing so, they're reducing stress on the plants while giving them an abundance of what they do use. That doesn't work for all plants, but for many of the plants in the trials, they grew better. 20% grew better. And 80% grew just as well, if not better. Or not, you know, just as well. And, you know, some did okay, but maybe had a little drop-off. And then some didn't do well at all. You just don't throw those in that type of greenhouse. Plenty of stuff left to grow. Stuff that grew well, tomatoes, cucumbers, lemons, limes, peppers, strawberries, basil. Pfft. Look at your produce section. See what percentage of that that is. Yeah, this is going to be the future. I don't know that it scales to the home user now. Um, if, if you want to get back to me, Brandon, with the cost versus what you're considering and the specs of the actual product you're considering, then I can do it as a financial decision for you. Right now, I can just tell you the overlying macro view of it. All right, so this next one's a gun question. How about we round things out with that? It says, hello, Jack. Archer from the forum here. Quick question for you. What scope do you recommend for a 3030? I have quick sight, low ring, so the scope needs to be 32 millimeter, not 40. I know some people don't think the 3030 should have a scope, but my eyesight is getting harder and harder to see longer distance. Thanks for your help, Steve-O. Steve-O, first of all, I'm going to say something. that It's not an attack on you at all. It's an attack on anybody that bitches about the fact that anybody else wants a scope and makes people do what you just did. We should stop this shit about, yeah, I haven't put a scope on it because my eyes are getting older and I don't see as Listen, if you want a scope on your gun, you don't need to explain to anybody why. And the reality is there's a lot of reasons to put a scope on a gun where the range of that weapon doesn't necessarily need a scope. The deer I shot two years ago, I could not have shot without a scope. I should say a year ago. Could not have shot her without a doe. I would not have been 100% that it was a doe, which if it had been a buck, it would have been too small of a buck to shoot where I was at without a scope. You say, well, you could have binoculars. Fine. I would not have been comfortable taking the shot. It was a roughly 100-yard shot. There was just enough light left to see in a scope, but not enough to see with iron sights. 
That's just one reason. Another reason. I'm in the woods. I see a deer. That deer's about 70 yards away, 50 yards away, 40 yards away. I don't care. Lots of brush and tangles, thick woods. Can I thread that bullet into the vitals? Is that piece of the deer I see its head kind of shaded by a thing? I've decided it's a good deer. I'm going to take the shot. Do I have a clean shot? I'm going to check with my binoculars. Oh, yeah, but it's moved. I shot a deer one time. I'm sitting in a tree stand. It was in Buck Laurel. It was a buck, seven-point buck. And he kind of knew something was going on. And he stood up. He sniffed. And I couldn't really see him clearly, but I could tell I could see, because it was cold, I could see the, the steam from his nostrils as they flared. Put the scope on him. I realized he's looking right at me. Can't quite make me out. I'm in a good spot. He's in a good spot. Kind of in a stalemate standoff. But I can see those nostrils going. Move the scope down. I do not have anything approaching a clear shot at his body. And I see that white patch on the throat. And I realize where I'm at, I can lean against a tree. I've got a solid strong side rest. And I've got those crosshairs right dead center. And I'm basically shooting right under his chin. I'm going to break his spine through the front side of his throat. Took the shot. That deer went down like a stick of dynamite went off in it. It didn't move. It Because when somebody, when somebody shatters your C2 vertebrae from the front side through, you don't go anywhere. Drop like a stone. It's my uncle's 35 Remington. I would not have taken that shot with iron sights. I had really good eyes back then. I was 14 years old. I had a really good eye back then, right? Because I'm blind. Once. I had a really good eye. Um... <laughs> It wasn't that I couldn't make the shot. I couldn't see the shot even with good eyes. So please, all of you that send me emails, all of you that post the forms, all of you that post the list, stop the whole old eyes thing. Scopes are used because they make us better shooters. The end. Okay? And that's a good thing. And if we respect the life of the animal we're going to harvest, and we want to be able to take those iffy shots with confidence and not cripple and instead make clean kills then if the scope fits, we put it on the gun, okay? As for what's, I think 3030s are a fantastic rifle in the scope. They're a 150 to 200 yard maximum range gun. That's definitely scope distances, but they're also very effective at close ranges, you know, bush hunting and things like that. I'm going to sound like a broken record here because I've recommended the, this family of scopes so many times, but until I find a better value for the buck, I, I don't have anywhere else to go. I'm going to give you three recommendations. They're all loopholes. The bottom end scope I'd recommend. If you're going to put a scope on a gun, unless you just don't have money. And you can get like a Simmons 4x4 or something like that. It'll be okay, but sooner or later it will shit the bet on you. So you can buy a decent $75 scope. Simmons makes some decent $75 scopes is one example. Uh, BSA makes some decent $70 to $100 scopes. And they work well for a time, and then they start to go funny and the danger is that it's three or four years in, you don't have money for a new scope, and instead of starting to go funny, it goes completely funny, and you end up shooting a deer in the ass or missing two feet high. All right? Loopholes don't do that. They just don't, even their, their entry levels. The same scope I've recommended so many times now is what I would say your base level is, the loophole, 11, I'm sorry, 113-863-VX1. 
and that's a two to seven by thirty three matte finish scope. It'll look beautiful. Uh, it's going to either be a Winchester or a Marlin. I'm betting that you're, you're going to be putting it on. It's a standard duplex rectangle. It's perfect for your gun. It's relatively lightweight. It's about nine ounces, uh, nine ounces and change. Um, it's everything you need. You don't need more than seven power. But having the ability to keep that scope on three power when you're woods hunting and be able to make running shots, like I, I mean, I was in a place where you get 300 yard shots. I had to make a 50 yard running shot this year. Um, I did have this scope on the gun, but I did have the scope dialed down to four power uh, because of the situation I was in. If I had had that scope maxed out, I, I don't think I could have made that shot at that distance. The animal would have filled the scope. So I like low magnification, especially with a lever gun and a brush gun. That said, for a little bit more money, you can go up to the same scope, basically, in the VX2 line. It has a different gas mixture in the scope. It has better light gathering uh, ability. And it, it takes you up from $180 bucks to $227. Bucks. I... This is the scope I will use from now on for this need. This kind of magnification, this kind of size, etc. I think at $227, it is a fantastic scope. I don't think, and you know, you're looking at your lever action 3030s. You're looking at guns you can go to a gun show and you can buy for three, four hundred dollars, sometimes less. Brand new. I mean, what's a what's a a kind of stock Marlin 3030? Brand new cost. MSRP is about six hundred and twenty bucks, six hundred and thirty bucks, something like that on a stock model thirty thirty. Six hundred dollar gun at best. Um some of them sure they're they're done up a bit, they're slicked up, they're you know, special stocks or stainless steel, whatever. And if you have one that you've kind of like decided to really kind of that's gonna be your take everywhere gun, maybe it's because of the type of hunting you do. Uh, and if I'm doing that, I'm probably stepping to something like a 4570 or something like that. But if it's like that, yeah, maybe you can put some more money into it. I have a hard time taking a four or $500 gun. Because even with $600 retail, I mean, you're looking at street prices in the 400s. How do I take a $400 gun and put a $1,000 scope on it? You know, especially if I have more than one gun. I and mean, I have lots more than one gun. But I will make that step up to that $227 on the VX2. And I think that's kind of like my top end if I just want to scope. However, I do have one other loophole to recommend for you. They don't make this, from what I can see, in a 2x7. They only make it in a 3x9. But they make it a 3x9 with the smaller 33mm objective that you do want on your 3030. Let me say something about that. If somebody said I have to stick to a 33mm objective because of my mounts, and the gun was a gun that really would benefit or not really change in benefit by going to medium or high rings, I'd say don't be married to your rings. Right? Go to higher rings if you want to. But a 30-30, 35 Remington, those types of lever guns, straight stock, you want your head down tight, you want that low scope. So I want to stick to that lower profile scope. They make a VX2 Ultralight for 287 So that's like another 60 bucks. If you're willing to spend up in this $300 range, I'd really consider this for a lever gun. Ultralight, what's it save you? It saves you about an ounce and a half. Uh, this scope weighs eight pounds, eight ounces. Why do I say I would do this, though? When you scope a lever gun, you have to understand you're scoping a gun that even though now they make them designed so it's easy to put scopes on them, the pattern of that gun 
was never meant to have a scope. And it was never designed with balance in mind to have, you know, a half a pound sitting back on the receiver, even though they do just fine with it. I'm not necessarily saying I would pay an extra 60 bucks to cut an ounce of weight off my rifle. But with a lever gun, I might because it's going to balance better. So I would pick between those three. And I can't do any better than to tell you if it was my 30, if I had a 30-30 right now sitting upstairs, what would I do? I would spend the extra money and buy the ultralight scope. However, if money was in question at all, I would go with one of the other two scopes and I would never breathe a complaint. My 357 Magnum rifle, you know what's sitting on it? The VX1, uh, 2x7, which is what I shot that doe I was talking about with. Just fine. Just fine. Had it to do again, I'd probably go to the VX2 just for the additional light gathering. Probably wouldn't pay the extra 60 bucks on top of that for the ultralight. But if I decide to put another one of these scopes on my 44 mag rifle, which right now is running iron sights, I'd probably do the ultralight. It, the 3x9. I would actually really like to see an ultralight affordable um, loophole in a one and a half to five power. But the ones I've seen not only are heavy, even though they are a smaller scope, they're heavy with the bell to the rear. And they, to me, they just blow the balance of a lever gun to shit, which is a shame because that's one of the great things about lever guns is how they balance. Not only do they have that weight, the weight is distributed over the hammer to the rear of the gun. And it's just, I had one on that 44. Uh, it wasn't a loophole, but it was a similar scope. I believe it was made by Redfield. Uh, it was really a shotgun scope, but it was almost, when I looked at the specs of the loophole, I was trying to find one for you. Um, I just, it was so similar, and I so didn't like it. That's why that gun doesn't have a scope right now. I can't good conscience recommend it. And uh, it, I have links to all of those in the show notes if you want the ultralight one soon. Um, it says there's one available on Amazon, so I'd go ahead and get it. But if you don't get it now, you'll know which one it is. And by all means, you know, I love selling stuff on Amazon because flatly it makes me money. Um, but once you know exactly what I'm talking about, if you can get a better deal at your local sporting goods shop or whatever, go ahead and do that. Uh, don't, don't wait on it in stock because you want to buy it through my links. Go ahead and, and get it from your local store. This final one will be really brief. comes from Jeff, and Jeff says, Hello, Jack. You mentioned that you're going to be a speaker at the 2018 Liberty Forum and that discounts would be available for TSP listeners. Do you have any additional information about this? Do you have any additional info on this? I haven't heard about it in a while, and I'm interested in reserving tickets soon. I would love to hear your speech. Jeff, Jeff, I actually, when I got this email from you, I realized with getting ready for the workshop and all, I had kind of let that slide, and I, even though I've been talking to them, I haven't kind of pushed like, hey, when you, because I basically said I will promote the shit out of this for you, uh, and they said they would give me a discount code, not for MSB, for everybody, and uh, I emailed them this morning when I decided to put your question in the show, and we'll hear back from them. I, I would say that I don't know how big a discount. They're doing early bird tickets right now, and I'll have a link in the show notes where you can get your tickets if you want to. They're doing the all-inclusive ticket for $289, um, and they're doing general admission for $129. So they may kind of cut something off of the, the cost, but th since they're doing early bird, I bet you this is discounted. And they may be holding out and giving out discount codes until the early bird goes away. 
So you may want to go ahead and get it. I don't know that it'll be that big of a discount. I, I don't really know. Um, but again, I I'd also would feel bad if you didn't get a discount and it was significant. So I don't know what they're going to do. You know, probably 10% off or something like that. Um, but hopefully I'll hear back from them today. As soon as I do, I will make the code public and I will begin to promote it more aggressively. Um, I, I do want to kind of throw out, man, this is going to be, I think, like the best Liberty Forum ever. One of the things I did, and whenever you do this, no matter how sure you are of the person you're doing it for, you're taking a risk. Because I approached the organizer of uh, the 2018 Liberty Forum, which I guess I should point out, Liberty Forum is a function of the Free State Project in New Hampshire. It's probably the largest and best Liberty Conference in the United States. It's done in February in New Hampshire. This year it's going to be February 8, 9, and 10 at the Radisson Hotel in Manchester, New Hampshire. And I will be there speaking. I will be doing four presentations. I will be doing keynote. I will be doing a mini keynote, which I still need to know exactly what that is so that I get it ready for them. I will be doing a straight-up like discussion on or a, you know, a presentation on a subject. And I will be doing a panel discussion on making podcasting profitable. And one of the things I said is I want to help. I don't want to see you guys spending a $10,000 speaker fee to bring in a guy like Joel Salton again. Not because, I mean, I love Joel. He's one of my heroes. But honest to God, as a speaker, Joel comes in, he does his speech, he does a book signing, he collects his money, and he leaves. No harm, no foul, that's what you want to do. But I'm like, man, you know what? People don't come to this just for the talks. They come to this to network, and they come to this to meet these people. When they see people's name on a docket, they're like, I want to go there, and I want to meet Jack. Or I want to go there, like the one year I was there, I keynoted opposite, uh, the other keynote speaker was Tom Woods. I want to go there, and I want to meet Tom Woods. And Tom Woods, to be fair, hung out. When he was done talking, he hung out. He didn't hang out in the bar much, but he, he was there. If you wanted to talk to Tom Woods and you didn't get to, he, it's because he was there and you didn't go talk to him. So one of the people that I brought in this year that I think is going to be just fantastic there is Vin Armani. And I wasn't sure, like, would he be that guy? Well, I just had him at my workshop. He was that guy here, so I can't see him not being that guy there. So Vin's going to be there. I'm going to be there. There's some other people that are going to be there. I tried to bring Doc Bones and Nurse Amy in. Uh, they were totally okay with having them. They've elected to go do SHOT Show. I personally am not of the opinion that that's a better play for them financially. But if they get one big reseller out of it, it probably is. But I think they would do more for their brand there. But that's their choice. Kind of sucks because they're really close friends. Amy would be there to hang out with Dorothy. Since they're not going, it looks like Dorothy's not going to go. Um, to Liberty Forum. So she'll be able to stay here and take care of our farm. So I guess that's good, except I won't have my wife for, you know, half a week. Uh, but that's bad. Because um, that means I don't have her, and I love having my wife with me. But it's going to be great. And I've, I've done a lot to try to, to, to kind of build this up for them to where your main guys are not going to walk away at the end of their talk and not talk to anybody. I'm a guy, I hang out most of the time, honestly, if I'm not listening to another speaker, if I'm not speaking myself, if I'm not giving an interview, I go to the bar. I go to the bar because you can find me there, we can order drinks, we can hang out, and that's a good place to talk and bullshit. And that's what I'm there to do. I'm there to be with you guys. If you can hear my voice, 
I didn't present that much at my workshop. I did three panel discussions, but there's a whole panel each time. And I did a property walk. And I still sound like this. Why? Because I spent every minute that I could while people were here sitting down, talking to people, hearing their stories, giving them my advice, because that's what the F you're supposed to do. And I'm actually kind of totally disenfranchised with most of these big liberty conferences, speaker this, get together that, blah, blah, blah here, spend $1,000 to fly there, plus $500 on tickets, and here's 10 people like from Fox News or whatever they be, and you can't talk to them for more than 10 seconds. And I understand as a personality, I get it. Man, when I did Permaculture Voices 1, I said I was going to come back for two with a shirt that on the back of it said, not while I pee. Because I literally had people following me into the men's room and telling me about their project or asking me their question while I was taking a piss. And that's too much. And I understand that if you're a really big name, and I'm not that big a name, but if you're a really big name, and there's a thousand people that want to talk to you in two days, there's no way you can talk to them all. But you can, you can make the effort. You can make the effort for people that didn't just spend $500 or $200 or $300 for a ticket. They took time off of work. They had to get a hotel. They had to travel. They had to disrupt their lives because they wanted to meet somebody. They wanted to shake their hand. They wanted to look them in the eye, and they wanted to say, hey, what do you think about, or hey, thank you for what you've done for me. And honestly, speakers that don't make time to do that, I don't think they should be speakers. If all you're going to do is talk and leave, screw that. You know what? People can get that from a YouTube Make a YouTube video and do that. You might as well. Some of these speakers, I mean, you might as well record your presentation and just say, if you want me there, uh, I'll charge you $100 to play my presentation on a video. If you're not going to be there to talk to people, if you're not going to be there, and I, don't, I mentioned Joel, so I want to be clear. Joel took pictures with people and stuff. He was just easy to point out because he's been to uh, Liberty Forum a few times. But he, even him, he does leave. You know, he doesn't stay. When his last talk's done, he's on an airplane or a car, and he's gone. I don't even know if he flies because of his religious things, but he's gone. And some of the other speakers, some of these things I've been to, they're literally on the stage, off the stage, out the effing door. Man, again, you might as well record your shit and mail it in. If you, I'm saying this to a lot of you guys that are coming up in the world now. You're building your own thing. You start doing these events. You hang out with people. You buy them a beer. They come in a bar and go, man, I'm Jack. I've been waiting to buy you a beer. Let me buy you one first. Let me get you one first. You're why I'm here. You're why I do what I do. I'm trying to bring people like that to Liberty Forum this year and the spirit of that to Liberty Forum this year because I love those people for what they've been able to accomplish. And I, I, I highly invite you to look into this to see if you can make the date works Come out and meet me. Come out and meet Vin. Come out and meet the other speakers. Come out and meet these people. Because it's the only place I know where you will see anarchists and state representatives sitting at the same table, both having their own opinions, but getting along with a common goal. It's pretty damn powerful. It's pretty damn... I, part of me wishes I could be a part of it permanently, that I could move up there. It just doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for me. 
but the fact that I'm supporting them as deeply as I have over the years. I gave them free advertising for two straight years. Tells you how much I believe in what they're doing. And Liberty forms something special, and I invite you to come join myself and other liberty-minded people at Liberty Forum in New Hampshire this February 8 through 10, 2018. That brings us to our song of the day, and uh, John Adam has uh, picked this one out for us because of another John. John from Long Island requested a song from the Rush album 2112 for episode 2112, which is today's episode of the Survival Podcast. Uh, by the way, I'm not going to tell you the song, but tomorrow's song is by Steve Harris. Not that Stephen Harris, but just I just noticed it on the list, and I want to tell you. Um, but this is probably... Off 2112, to listen to my least favorite song. Just the sound of it. It's classic Rush, but it's a bit much, even for Rush on some levels. Um, but it's probably my favorite song in its meaning and what it means and what the lyrics are. Here's a little uh, bit about it on uh, Song Facts. According to Rush drummer Neil Peart's book, Traveling Music, in the mid-1970s, the band was driving to a show in downtown Los Angeles at the Shrine Auditorium, and Neil noticed some graffiti splattered on the wall. Freedom isn't free, and this was adapted for this song. Now, that terminology, freedom isn't free, has been adapted in the modern world to basically commercialize the military. It's become a marketing slogan. Now, I know many people mean well when they say freedom isn't free, and they honor and respect our troops. But the establishment has embraced it to basically say, send us your young men to die in these wars, even if you don't understand why they're doing it. Because it must be right, because we're doing it, and we're never wrong. <laughs> cough Vietnam, cough Korea. Mm. All right? You know, just as some concrete examples of places we really screwed things up. And, and I won't bring, I know people are saying, well, in modern world, we've got plenty. Of, yeah, but you know what? People haven't come to grips with it yet. I think Vietnam is the perfect war to point out that we can be wrong. Because most people have emotionally detached from it enough now to go, yeah, we were wrong. Yeah, we, everything that we did was basically a screw up there. And the men that died and didn't come home never had to die and not come home. And the people whose lives were ruined never had to be ruined. And freedom isn't free has become a marketing slogan because it's true to sell a lie. Well, I'm happy to tell you that's not how it's used in this song. This song, when it talks about freedom, is talking about the freedom that I talk about every day on this show. Personal freedom. Personal liberty. Let me give you some of the, the lyrics. Waiting for the winds of change to sweep the clouds away. Waiting for the rainbow's end to cast its gold your way. Countless ways you pass the days. Waiting for someone to call and turn your world around. Looking for an answer to the questions you have found. Looking for an open door. Oh, you don't get something for nothing. You don't get freedom for free. You won't get wise with the sleep still in your eyes. No matter what your dreams might be. I found it interesting when I looked at the... I always look at the comments on YouTube for these songs. See what people... Because these are songs from like when I was a kid, right? What do people think of these songs today? And one guy I got the impression is probably about my age. Played this song when he was doing some kind of school thing. 
like a school group thing or something. He played it for high school students. He said they hated it. Not because they didn't like the style of music, they hated the message. Classic millennialism, right? You know? You don't get something for nothing. You don't get freedom for free. You won't get the you won't get wise with the sleep still in your eyes, no matter what your dreams might be. No, you don't get something for nothing. You can't have freedom for free. You won't get wise with the sleep still in your eyes, no matter what your dreams might be. What you own is your own kingdom. What you do is your own glory. What you love is your own power. What you live is your own story. In your head is the answer. Let it guide you along. Let your heart be the anchor and the beat of your song. Oh, you don't get something for nothing. You can't have freedom for free. No. Well, you don't get something for nothing. You can't have freedom for free. High schoolers hated it. You want to feel encouraged? You want to feel better? He went to the middle schoolers. They loved it. The tide's turning. The common sense is coming back. With that, this has been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.